0: And welcome to the Archbishop's Corner! This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the Church today, and how the Gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the Church living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. Call us a fast society, an efficient society, but don't call us a personal society. Our society is set up for isolation. We wear earbuds when we exercise. We communicate via email and text messages. Our mantra, I leave you alone, you leave me alone. Yet God wants his people to be an exception. Let everyone else go the way of computers and keyboards. God's children will be people of hospitality. Long before the church had pulpits and baptistries, she had kitchens and dinner tables. The believers met together in the temple every day. They ate together in their homes, happy to share their food with joyful hearts. Every day in the temple and in people's homes, they continued teaching the people and telling the good news that Jesus is the Christ. The primary gathering place of the church was in the home. Now today we meet in the archbishop's corner, and we recall the words of Jesus that where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. For the early Christian community, the house was the primary gathering place the Eucharist was celebrated and where the gospel was shared. Today we meet in the Archbishop's Corner to celebrate God's Word and break open a new understanding of the Gospel as we look to Archbishop Leonard Blair to open our hearts and minds to God's Word. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. How are you doing today?
1: Very well, thank you.
0: Well, here we are. A new month has begun. The year is flying by. Summer's over. The weather is getting cooler. starting to get dark too early. It's enough to get anyone down and that's a reason enough to change the direction and initiate what's called positive attitude month to get us thinking affirmative thoughts to help lift the spirits. Well, let me ask you this, when pessimistic thoughts cross your mind, negative thoughts, what do you do to change the negative to positive?
1: What do I change? Well, I think we don't dwell on the on the negative and we and we also take it to prayer, you know, when we have uh, challenges, difficulties, or we see things that are not the way they should be, we have to bring that to God in prayer. Um, and that's, I don't see how you can live without being a prayerful person. And uh, prayer is meant to raise our minds and hearts to God. And God re- also helps us to raise our minds and hearts from things that are uh, challenging and difficult uh, to uh, find a
0: certain serenity and uh, and peace. True. I agree with you because I think God has a way of of taking the fact that we've come to him, asking for assistance, a way of bringing positive thoughts back into the foreground of our thinking process, huh? Uh -huh. Wednesday, October 4th, is the feast of one of the most beloved saints of all time, St. Francis of Assisi. Our current Holy Father, Pope Francis, took the name Francis after him. He is the patron saint of animals and environment, cared for the poor and the sick, and praised all creatures as brothers and sisters under God. He founded the religious order known as the Friars Minor, commonly called the Franciscans. Reflecting on the life of St. Francis, do you have any thoughts to share?
1: Well, St. Francis is, of course, uh, is almost a folk hero, you know, uh, even in the popular mind, particularly through the promulgation of the prayer of St. Francis, which was written, I think, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, but uh, even though it wasn't actually written by St. Francis, it certainly expresses beautifully uh, the sentiments, the uh, the ideals of his, his uh, life and calling. And so people are very drawn to that, and rightly so. Um, also, to, in today's world where we're so concerned about uh, the environment, uh, St. Francis is a model for us as well of uh, his uh, outreach, so to speak, to all of creation, you know, but of course, Saint Francis also is a remedy for those who uh, want to somehow deify creation. Uh, that Saint Francis always uh, saw these as God's creatures, uh, mm-hmm. for which we have a certain responsibility. But they are creatures; they're not, you know, they're not something to be worshipped, but uh, to be cared for.
0: Thursday is National Do Something Nice Day. Now, you wouldn't think that we would need a day with such a designation. Of course, it would be ideal if everyone lived their lives doing kind things on a daily basis without thinking about it. What are your thoughts? Do we need such a day to remind people to do something nice?
1: Of course, you are have, remarkable at finding all these days that are proclaimed throughout the years, throughout the year, and uh, to the extent that they are reminders to people of what they should know or obliged to do uh, either by faith or reason, uh, I guess they're helpful. But certainly, uh, we can know by both faith and human reason that we are obliged to do these things.
0: And Friday of this week is National Manufacturing Day. It's observed annually on the first Friday in October. We celebrate those who proudly stand behind our goods and services made in America. Americans contribute to develop products and unlock new technologies that grow our economy. They create jobs through entrepreneurship, and their competitiveness revitalizes American manufacturing. How important is the emphasis on STEM? science, technology, engineering, and math education in our schools to secure the future of American production and innovation, Archbishop?
1: Well, in our Catholic school system, we adopt uh, those things, but we don't call it STEM. We call it STREAM. And you know what the R is put in there for? Religion. Yeah. So STREAM. And of course, all of these things, if they are um, part of human rationality, the, our God-given gift of, of reason and uh, of the exploration uh, of, uh, of the world, of the created world, and if it leads to uh, knowledge and the betterment of people's lives, etc., then, of course, all of that's for the good. But it, it, to be taught in a way that is not uh, devoid uh, of religion, and not devoid of, uh, of, of the, the divine element of the spiritual, of what is unseen.
0: And on Saturday, October 7th, The church celebrates the feast of our lady of the rosary the feast takes place in honor of a 16th century naval victory which secured europe against turkish invasion saint pius v attributed the victory to the intercession of the blessed virgin mary who was invoked on the day of the battle through a campaign to pray the rosary throughout europe talk for a minute archbishop about the rosary as an important tool in our prayer arsenal
1: well the rosary is a a form of prayer that uh, makes it possible for us to invoke the intercession of Mary, our Mother, and, of course, also our Lord, saying our Father, the Creed. But it does also, it's a form of meditation that it's focused on the mysteries of the rosary. Uh, and, of course, thats they're not essential to saying a rosary, but ideally and properly, uh, a person who's, who's uh, praying the rosary should f- focus on each of the, the mysteries, the, uh, the joyful, the uh, luminous, the sorrowful, and the glorious mysteries. And uh, when we do that, so we find a, f- a form of prayer that, that also is a form of meditation. And uh, in doing that, it's helped many, many people through many centuries to to be part of their prayer life.
0: Some people say that the, the rosary is too mechanical. It's not really getting them in touch with the presence of God in their lives because they say the same thing over and over and over again. How can you, as per- perhaps guide, As an archbishop, help people through that and get accustomed to praying the rosary. What would you say to somebody who said that to you?
1: Well, the rosary is not obligatory. If somebody has a, a, a manner of praying and meditating more suited to themselves, certainly they're not saying that the rosary is bad or that it's not part of the church's prayer, but they should find a form of a prayer through maybe consulting some spiritual books or spiritual director or or some other way to be guided to find another way that's more suitable for them. But I would hope that in public, et cetera, they would still be ready participants in this prayer that's so popular and used by so many people in, in, the, in the Church.
0: Well, let's take a look now at the road to happiness in life, and this is where we examine the wisdom of Pope Francis drawn from some of his writings. I'll read a short portion of the Holy Father's address, and then we'll ask you, Archbishop, to comment with your own thoughts. This is taken from Pope Francis's message for World Day of Prayer for Vocations, delivered on January 16th of 2015, and it's called, Does Your Family Still Dream? The Pope says, I'm very fond of dreams in families. For nine months, every mother and father dreams about their baby. Am I right? They dream about what kind of child he or she will be. You can't have a family without a dream. When a family loses the ability to dream, children do not grow. Love does not grow. Life is stifled and shriveled. So I recommend that each evening, when you examine your conscience, you ask yourselves this question. Did I dream about my children's future today? Did I dream about the love of my husband, my wife, today? Today I dreamed about my parents and my grandparents who came before me. Dreaming is very important, especially dreaming in families. Don't lose your ability to dream. Archbishop, your thoughts.
1: Well, the Pope has chosen to use the focus of uh, dreaming to express his thought in this matter, and that's very valid. There, you could refer to it in, in other ways, too, uh, in a sense that what are your hopes for example, um, about your your children. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your, well, you can say your dreams about uh, your, your family, the family's future, about your own future, what you, not in the sense of materialistic dreams, but in the sense of what are your, your hopes, your expectations, your desires. You know, there are many, a Catholic parent today, who dreams of their children, uh, grown children, going to Mass again and going to church you can say that that's a dream that they have in the sense that it's a hope. It's a, it's a vision of something that they hope will, will come to pass. So, yes, that's very important. Uh, it becomes the basis in many ways for prayer. When we, when we look at what we're asking God for, we're really asking him uh, things on the basis of what our hopes and dreams are for ourselves and uh, our loved ones, for uh, the society, for the world. And in that sense, it is something that comes to prayer.
0: Yes, dreaming is certainly uh, connected, can be connected with prayer, especially if parents have hopes for their children and take those hopes to the Lord in prayer. Well, let's now take a look at our Gospel reading on this first day of October when the Church celebrates the 26th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Our reading for today is taken from the 21st chapter of Matthew's Gospel, and after this dramatic presentation, we'll talk about its significance in our own lives as we ask you, Archbishop, for your thoughts. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. He went to the second and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? The first. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the harlots believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward repent and believe him. Archbishop, what is the message that Jesus has for us in the 21st century that comes from this gospel account of the 1st century?
1: Well, this is one of those very pointed uh uh, conversations that Jesus had with the chief priests and the scribes and the pharisees uh that how he really unmasks uh in a sense uh their own blindness and hard-heartedness uh failing to appreciate who he is or what he's come to do and i think all of us can he- we've heard what he just said in the gospel and uh so the punchline is uh, uh if people if if people are converted to god they turn away from sin and believe, then uh, how can you fault them? Whereas sometimes the people who are very religious are the ones who really need the conversion, but they hide behind their own self-righteousness. This parable certainly um, fits all of us. You know, we are those sons and daughters who a lot of times say no at first, but then uh, when we think about it and pray about it and have a change of heart, and in some cases uh, need to go to confession, then we, we do what God asks of us, even though we weren't so keen on it at first, or maybe we resisted, or we gave in to temptation, or we were weak. So what ultimately counts in the end is not how you, St. Augustine says this is not how you started the journey, it's how you ended. You may start the journey thinking of life, thinking you're you know uh, going to follow the straight and narrow, but in the end, you abandon it, and other people start out very rough and crooked in the journey uh, and many problems, trials, temptations, sins, but then in the end, they get it right. Uh, and, and we have to be w- very uh, careful that we, we, are, we are attentive to this uh, and that we also are very merciful in our thinking because sometimes people who are doing badly in their relationship to God and uh, moral life can wind up turning out fine uh, through repentance and faith. And we, on the other hand, like those Pharisees and scribes and elders, if we think we're on the straight and narrow and we're very cocky about it, we may wind up being the ones who fall. And so we we have to always be vigilant and trusting in God's mercy, and we have to be humble.
0: The question is asked, which one did the Father's will? Well, obviously the first, even though he originally said that he would not go work in the vineyard. Is this saying that you can be a sinner and change your mind and then be saved?
1: Well, of course, but we're all sinners. There's nobody that's not a sinner, so it applies to everybody. Uh, We are all sinners. The question is whether we are, How uh, along the way, are we going to start off thinking we're not, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, or are we going to recognize the truth that we are, and uh, are we going to, uh, you know, sometimes people who start off very well wind up very badly, and and the opposite is also true. So it's, it's again, as St. Augustine said, it's not how you, how you start. I mean, it's important to have a good beginning, but what really counts is how you end.
0: Let's look at some questions that have been submitted by our listeners. For instance, Tim from Plainville says, My neighbor is Catholic and has a 13-month-old baby at home. She happened to tell me that her baby has yet to be baptized. It raised an interesting question in my mind what would a good time be for a child to be baptized?
1: Well, the Church has always had the idea that we, in Latin, quam primum, which means as soon as possible. But remember that that uh, was prompted in great part by the enormous rates of infant mortality for most of human history. And the idea was you should have an infant, newly born uh, uh, infant baptized as soon as possible because life was dicey. You know, I remember when I was... Uh, archivist in the Archdiocese of Detroit, and I was looked at these sacramental books from parishes in the 19th century in the poor working-class uh, ethnic neighborhoods of Detroit, I thought I was looking at the funeral directory. I said, this wow. can't possibly be um, the, uh, you know, and it was all these children who died uh, uh, right at birth or very shortly after. I mean, it was horrendous, the rates. So that's one of the reasons why the churches, I said, quam primum, And that's still true today, but maybe in a slightly different way, that in today, where infant mortality is not the enormous uh, reality that it once was, uh, parents take a little while. You know, they don't run to the church the next day or next Mm -hmm. Sunday, but they wait a while, and I don't say that that's bad. But still, it shouldn't be something that's put off for too long. The idea is within a reasonable time uh, after birth, uh, there should be a a christening, a baptism.
0: Patrick from Watertown says... The Catholic Diocese of Cleveland has issued a policy on gender identity and related LGBT issues for its Catholic schools, saying Catholic institutions must accompany people experiencing gender dysphoria and be committed both to providing a loving environment and to upholding the truth of God's created reality. Their policy also mentions that the Catechism teaches that individuals who experience these perceptions or feelings are to be accepted with respect, compassion, and sensitivity— and that every sign of unjust discrimination in their regard should be avoided. What are your thoughts on the Diocese of Cleveland's policy? Does the Archdiocese of Hartford have any policies in regard to gender identity or LGBT issues in their own schools?
1: Well, uh, let me just say that... Naturally, in the news today, certain things are picked up here and there, and for whatever reason, probably because some politician made a big deal of it, the Cleveland thing got a lot of attention. I saw it, too, on the web and all this. But I can assure you they're not the only diocese that's issued such uh, guidelines. And for our own schools in the Hartford Archdiocese, we have guidelines that I'm sure are very similar. I don't know exactly what Cleveland said, but they're consistent with our principles. I mean, you're talking generally here, as I understand it, about gender dysphoria, transgenderism stuff. Um, you know, Pope Francis has been, you know, sometimes people think that Pope Francis somehow is out to, to water down these things, but Saint Fr- Pope Francis has said some powerful things about the Church's uh, understanding and teaching about these things, you know, that we we can't falsify the truth uh, about uh, the creation, about biological sex. And knowing certainly that people, for some people, this really is a personal issue, that they have these inclinations you know to to doubt question or even reject uh, their biological uh, sex but in our, our schools and such what we, we we would certainly try to help people as best we can but but if it becomes should cause confusion or disruption at the school or mislead other people or cause scandal potential for scandal then you have to talk to the parents uh, and with the student but we do uphold the fundamental Catholic truth that you you are Uh, born male or female. And notwithstanding some ambiguities that can arise or or whatever, we're not going to be able to admit uh, certain practices uh, that conform to what today is called transgenderism. So uh, this is a very uh, thorny uh, issue. And we, uh, the church for a long time, I remember even back in the uh, 1990s or early, early 2000s, you know, the The American Bishops issued a, a pastoral guidelines for the care of persons with a homosexual inclination. Mm-hmm. And there too, we 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 say that we do everything we can to help people in this situation and such, but that doesn't mean that we accept this ideology of these things that is contrary really to both faith and and human reason. It is a, a very thorny issue. There's a lot more that has to be discussed about it, uh, and we have to be respectful and understanding of people in that situation, but we're not going to uh, accept this as just being uh, a fact that, that people can uh, can live in a, in a way that uh, is not consistent with what we believe.
0: So, in fact, male and female, he created them, and so there are two sexes, male and female, that's yes. it? Yes,
1: while acknowledging that for some people, for whatever re- reason, there is a significant clinical distress or discomfort that comes from Uh, well, I guess what you'd call the incongruence between a person's biological sex and their desire to be identified otherwise. Well, that calls for counseling, for spiritual, emotional counseling, support for the child, but that does not permit us to accommodate uh, the uh, conduct of people in a way contrary to their uh, biological sex.
0: Debbie from Waterbury says, In the Gospel of John and she gives the reference of uh, chapter 19 verses 26 to 27 the disciple whom Jesus loved is at the foot of the cross and is entrusted with caring for the mother and Jesus who is this disciple and what makes him more loved than anyone else
1: well i mean the beloved disciple is identified very uh, in tradition with saint john the evangelist and uh Well, beloved disciple, Jesus is uh, uh, a divine person, but he's true God and true man. And the apostles all had their different personalities and their different uh, roles, you know. Uh, Peter, James, and John were kind of like the inner circle of Jesus's uh, apostles. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he was closer to them in some ways, perhaps, than to the others. Or maybe it was that he had more of a, uh, uh, a particular mission to entrust to them than others. And so it's not surprising that you know, uh, in the end, when they all ran away, that John was one who didn't run away. And he, he was there and and he took care of Mary as Christ's mother. And so he's known as the beloved disciple. Um, so uh, that, but, but clearly in answer to the question, it is a tradition assigns that uh, identity to the apostle John, the author of the fourth
0: gospel. And Larry from Warren says, why is it that in Christian art, God the Father is often presented as an old man with white hair and a beard. When did that first start?
1: Well, you have to understand that there can be no real representation of uh, God except for the person of of Christ in, in as much as he became man. He became incarnate, and so he can de- be depicted as such. But uh, And also, uh, you have to remember that uh, Jesus uh, taught us, and Scripture teaches us, but Jesus, in particular, about the fa- His Father in heaven, with the understanding that the fatherhood of God is not about biological fatherhood; it's not about uh, human um, maleness, but it is. Uh, but this is a very profound question that I can't d- deal with adequately in a program like this. But the point is that there is something about fatherhood that applies to God that transcends even before there was Adam and Eve, even before there was uh, creation, that God could be called Father. Um, and you can meditate on the difference between the human sexes created in the image and likeness of God uh, to ascribe this. But, you know, if in, in world religions and such, if there's a mother goddess instead of a father, they're very different kinds of religion than the revealed religion of the Bible and Christianity. Um, so we... You know, this gets fraught with many complications today because then uh, when you talk about the difference between men and women and you talk about the different uh, roles and vocations of men and women in the church and the world today, there's much strife about this, and it it requires a lot of careful thought. But in the end, well, it's similar to the other question about uh, transgenderism and all this kind of stuff, that the basic truths of Scripture about the fatherhood of God and The fact that God became incarnate as man, uh, not as a woman, there are implications to this that do not denigrate or uh, belittle or or, or in any way relativize women. But there's something to be learned in all of this about the difference between fatherhood and motherhood reflecting something that that goes back to, to God himself. And it's true that the Old Testament sometimes refers to to the God as as um as a mother, but it's clear uh, that uh, because there are elements of God's care for us that are maternal, but mm. the the image that has been given to us, the revelation, uses the word fatherhood with the understanding that that fatherhood is not biological and it does it transcends uh, anything we know about human, our experience of human fatherhood. And uh, I think that's something that uh, requires a lot of uh, thought and prayer. But, you know, today our world is moving uh, to uh, deny uh, both faith and reason uh, regarding uh, creation of, of male and female and the diff- what, what the significance of this is and what the relationship is. And we have to be very, very uh, wary of this because, first of all, it's it's contrary not only to faith but even to human reason in some aspects. And, uh, we have to find a path that is true to both faith and reason.
0: Rosemary from East Granby says, Why can't a Catholic couple receive the sacrament of marriage at any church? My grandson and his fiancé chose New York City as a midpoint of getting married to help their family travel distances. They sought the ceremony at several churches but were declined because they were not parishioners. Our family is devastated and angry at the church. We thought any sacrament should be received at any church.
1: Well, the parochial system isn't what it used to be. I mean, when Catholicism in the United States was so populous and so many people practicing, everybody was very much attached to their parish, and uh, you were expected to go, and you still are expected to go to the parish where you, where you belong, and you practice the faith. Yeah, very often, as you know, it was the bride's parish that was the place for a wedding. Mm-hmm. Today, that's uh, not no longer insisted upon, but you have to understand that we have very few priests, and a lot of parish priests on Manhattan Island, I'm sure, like anywhere else, are working very hard to try—some of them are even struggling to keep up with the needs of their own parishioners. They're not going to be inclined to uh, to be too uh, happy to, to have somebody come from Connecticut and want to have their wedding at their parish church. Having said that, though, there are very often shrines or uh, cathedrals where— uh, uh, you know, especially in this day of destination weddings, uh, where people are traveling far afield to, to get married, and there are churches that can accommodate them. So it's not that there's some rule that you can't be married uh, at uh, in some other church or any church, but it's the practical consideration of, of this. Um, and uh, there are parishes and uh, cathedrals and shrines that are set up that they can accommodate uh, weddings from, uh, you know, outside their boundaries or someplace else. I mean, I... And, and if a parish priest uh, can accommodate them uh, and is willing to do it, then it can happen. Uh, it still needs the, the uh, permission of their own parish priest in writing, uh, but uh, but it can be done. So I don't know who they approached or under what circumstances. You know, with some of these destination weddings, people are even going to Europe to be married. I mm-hmm. mean, one of our priests recently uh, witnessed the marriage of his brother and, and uh, wife at a church in Rome. Um I had a case here recently where a couple from out of state, I think Ohio, where I used to be bishop, they want to be married in a church in, in, in a parish here in the archdiocese. And uh, the pastor said, well, I, yes, if they want to, they can do that. And, and I said, well, fine. So there's nothing to prohibit it, but we, ha- we it, I don't know the circumstances of the kind of churches they asked uh, far away from home, uh, uh, you know, what the reasons might have been.
0: It might have been practical reasons is what you're saying. <laughs>
1: yes, and I assume they're free to marry, that you know, there's no uh, obstacle. But you understand that when people get married in a church, the priest there takes on a responsibility to prepare them to have all the proper paperwork done. And by paperwork, I don't mean just a bureaucratic thing. But it's the fundamental questions about their freedom to marriage, uh, to be married, their understanding of the sacrament, their willingness to, to live the sacrament as the church believes it to be. So it's not just a matter of showing up for the ceremony.
0: Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close the program with a prayer and a blessing, please?
1: Lord, in today's world, we face many challenges, many questions uh, that are complex and that trouble our society. And uh, we pray that through the gift of the Holy Spirit, we may discern wisely and well the questions that all of us face with fidelity to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of, of creation and redemption. And we ask, Lord, that you bless all of us in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.
0: Amen. Archbishop, thank you for sharing your time with us in the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you again next week at the same time. Until then, I hope you enjoy this upcoming week. Thank you.